Hello and welcome. This is Jonah Steinberg. I'm a Jewish chaplain at Harvard and the director of Harvard Hillel, and so glad to welcome you to this conversation about the themes week by week of our Torah readings. And I am so glad to be joined for this week's conversation by two wonderful people whom I will introduce in a moment. But first, as to our Torah reading. Speak to the children of Israel, says God to Moses in our scriptures this week, and let them gather a gift from each person moved in heart to contribute. Thus shall you gather this gift for me. And this is the gift you shall receive from them, our Torah goes on, gold and silver and copper and sky blue and purple, crimson and linen white and goat hides and red tanned ram's hides and hides of tachash, more on that soon, and acacia wood, oil for light, fragrances for the oil of anointing and for the aromatic incense, shoham stones and gems for setting in the priestly garment and the breastplate, and they shall make me a sanctuary, and I, God, shall dwell in their midst. If it is something of an ancient shopping list, it also has become a locus classicus through the generations, a go-to passage for speaking and teaching figuratively about the many heart-moved gifts from such a panoply of people that go into creating our shared sacred experience. And so our theme is multiplicity, and the audacious notion, even the chutzpah, from the heart of our tradition that by collecting together what each person is moved to bring, we can create with one another a sacred phenomenon, even a dwelling place for the divine. An audacious mandate, perhaps a daunting one, perhaps to some implausible, we'll see that even Moses had his doubts. But it really is also the idea at the heart of these Harvard Torah podcasts, not just the notion that everyone who takes part is capable of bringing something essential to a focal point we all share together, but also that the picture is not complete without the contribution that begins in each unique person's heart. That may be a romantic notion, I admit. Some may even say a hazardous one, but it's the best way I know to be true to our heritage of Israel. Speaking of which, here with us is a master podcaster in Israel, Mishi Harman, Harvard class of uh, 2008, host of the acclaimed Israel Story podcast. Israel Story, Sipur Israeli, is Israel's most widely subscribed podcast. And in its English language version, it also reaches listeners all around the world as the most subscribed Jewish podcast of our times. The series has been acknowledged by none other than NPR's Ira Glass as Israel's equivalent to This American Life. And in a way, Mishi attributes his very existence to Harvard Hillel. I learned just recently as his parents met in the Harvard Hillel Sukkah on Bryant Street, in 1968, his mother, a student of Harvard professors Twersky and Yerushalmi, and his father, an Israeli grad student in the Ed School who had just served in the Six-Day War. In his own time at Harvard, again, I just learned this recently, Mishi sang in Kumba, the Black Gospel Choir, not the only Harvard Ashkenazi to do so, I can say from observation in my time here, but certainly a noteworthy development for a young fellow who initially thought 
he had come to Harvard just to study and had all the friends he could ask for back at home when he arrived here in 2004, weeks after his own military service. And here too is Noah Epstein of Harvard College's Winthrop House and class of 2021. Noah is a computer science concentrator with a secondary in Earth and planetary sciences, an intramural athlete, and beyond being here in his own right as someone whose generous heart has done so much to enliven the Harvard Hillel community, Noah is with us too for this conversation in particular because he has served as something of a chronicler of Harvard Hillel creating and compiling our weekly electronic student newsletter, Nosh on This, affectionately known in our inboxes and our hearts as the Nosh, uh, not only advertising the plethora of activities and interests that make up Harvard Hillel, but also featuring each time a Harvard Hillel Human of the Week, and really telling the story of our community week by week with a sometimes wry and sportive, but always loving commitment. Uh, Noah has just recently handed on that communication responsibility to a worthy successor in anticipation of his own uh, moving up and on in our community. There are always worthy successors in a place like this, but each person's contribution is unique and inimitable, as Noah's certainly has been. Which brings us back to our topic, a rich array of distinctive gifts, multiplicity. Um, and on that, let me turn, Mishi, first to you. I won't ask you here to retell the story of Israel story, which we've had you do at Harvard Hillel and on our campus a number of times, but rather let me put a proposition to you from deep within our tradition and see if it rings true, as you may be one of the people best situated to know. The core idea in our Torah reading this week is that the people collectively are capable of furnishing the materials to fashion within their encampment a home for the divine. Classical rabbinic midrash from late antiquity picks up and amplifies this idea, having God say to Moses, Im ma'ala If you, Moses, manage to create for me, God, something like that which I have here above, down below, I, God, will set aside my celestial senate and will cause my presence, my shekhinah, to dwell amid you down below. Now, anyone who spends any time up close to present-day Israel discovers it to be a kaleidoscope of dizzyingly intense stories. Sometimes, in fact, intensity seems to be the only common factor to its many, many stories. And the proposition I want to put to you, Mishi, and ask if it seems right, is that somehow that ancient chutzpah of believing oneself capable of creating a divine habitation, or an invitation to a manifestation of the Most High, is at the root of Israeli intensity. Not that everyone thinks about it theologically, or in traditional or even specifically Jewish terms, but because in effect Israel is an amplifier of this audacious idea or feeling that this is what is at stake, that the ineffable and ultimate may come to inhabit and be manifest within that which we shape. As host of Sipur Israeli, of, of the Israel story of stories, how does that sound to you? Um... 
Well, first of all, I'll just say, Jonah, that it's, uh, it's a real honor to be here and thank you and lovely to be here with you, Noah. Um, I, uh, I listen to the Harvard Hillel podcast religiously uh, when, it comes, when it comes out every Friday and, uh, and uh, always uh, feel as, as if I learn a lot and uh, enjoy um, it tremendously. So it's, it's wonderful to be part of that tradition. And, uh, um, you know, Israel, Israel is a lot of different things to, to a lot of different people and, uh, and to, um, you know, to some, of course, there's a, um, there's a tremendous connection to, to the, to the physicality of Israel, to the lands, to, to, to the hills, to the valleys. Um, for me, uh, personally, um, you know, Israel has always been what made it home more than anything, other than the fact that, uh, that, that this is my home and, and, and where I was born and raised and grew up and where my family is, is, is its people. And, uh, and as you say it, you know, the, um, the, the real rich um, kaleidoscope or tapestry of traditions and, and, and backgrounds and stories that, that mix with each other. Um, and uh, that, that, you know, everyone, I guess, when they think about what makes, what makes their home their home, will come up with a different answer. But for me, I mean, you know, this is the main thing um, that, um, uh, and, and with Israel's story, what we really attempted to do is to try to portray that um, and, to, and to represent that richness and that complexity and that nuance. Um, and, you know, I, I was born and live in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's feels sometimes like a small town, but in fact, it's a large city of, you know, more than 900,000 residents and, and a third of, a third of Jerusalem are ultra-Orthodox Jews and a third of them are Arabs and a third of them are non-ultra-Orthodox Jews. And the truth of the matter is that, you know, growing up, um, uh, I, who, you know, grew up in the non-ultra-Orthodox Jewish world, uh, had almost no, no real meaningful connection to members of these other groups. Um, and, and I don't think I'm in any way unique. I think that most people, both in Jerusalem and everywhere around the world, you know, create these sort of bubbles around, these social bubbles around themselves and uh, that are mainly, mainly um, inhabited by pe people who are pretty similar to them, who, um, you know, go to the same educational institutions who like the same things, who vote for the same political parties, who work in similar jobs and so on and so forth. Um, but what is perhaps, uh, perhaps a little bit unique to, to Jerusalem and to really to large cities is that you, you come, you see people of other groups all the time. So, so it's hard to ignore their, their presence or their existence. And, you know, what most often happens is that you, you see someone walking, you know, on the, on the street uh, or, or sitting next to you on the bus and you sort of take in what, what they're wearing or what color skin they have or who they are. And you immediately sort of put them in a category or a box of, of what kind of person they are and what societal group they, they belong to. And then you start piling up all these assumptions on them and you think that you really know who they are, what they have for dinner, and what, how many kids they have, and uh, what newspapers they read, and so on and so forth. 
And rarely, you know, within a second, you've constructed this whole story and narrative about who these people are, that it sort of obviates the, the necessity to, to ever engage or interact. And as a result, most people don't. And, uh, you know, what, what I think we hoped and tried to do with our show is to, um, is to, is to allow people a, a space where they can actually interact with people who whom perhaps they wouldn't meet or encounter in, in real life. And, um, uh, I think in that in that uh, in that way, um, perhaps somewhat similarly to, to to you know the the idea of all of us being able to bring our own little present and 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 together build a divine dwelling, as you said, you know we th- this our society is only what it is because we all have our our own perspectives and stories and uh, and unless we really are able to see them and hear them and share them, then then our life is 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 much poorer. Thank you for that. And Noah, I'm going to ask you in a moment if that sounds anything like our our little community of Harvard Hillel. Um, but I, I want to pick up on what Mishi just said by adding to our reading table a midrash, uh, an interpretation from the rabbinic tradition in late antiquity, and and see if this seems right to you. There's a teaching I love on this week's Torah reading about the Israelites' contributions to the sacred that explains, seems to explain what is going on most deeply by way of a parable. As so, once there were two merchants who were traveling together. One of them had a bolt of silk and the other a sack of pepper. They said to each other, let us exchange our merchandise. So the one took the pepper, the other took the silk, That which the one had previously owned was then no longer that one's possession, and that which the other had owned was then likewise no longer that one's possession. With regard to Torah, however, says the Midrash, that is not how it goes. If one person specializes in the Torah pertaining to agriculture, and another studies the Torah of holidays, and they exchange their learning and their insights with one another, then each comes to possess both. And the Midrash then asks rhetorically, is there any commodity more precious or more wondrous than that? So amid the intensity of Harvard Hillel stories, and they can be intense because of the amazing array of distinctive individuals involved, I think about that teaching and how we don't give up our own unique identities or that which is most precious to each of us, but somehow perhaps in our best moments we come to comprehend one another, at least through precious glimpses of each other's perspectives. Um, Perhaps a romantic notion, and I'm going to say one more thing, Noah, because it's very particular to to something I remember of you. I remember listening to you tell a story on a Shabbat evening in our dining hall about a Sabbath adventure of your own in challenging travel circumstances. And what I found so wonderful then was watching the mix and the alternation on the faces in our dining hall of comprehension and horror and admiration and bewilderment and a hundred different reactions and ultimately most of all love flickering among the listeners at that large and inclusive Shabbat meal. So I wonder what you think about the kaleidoscope of our community in relation to what Mishi's just related and and what it has meant to you and means to you to be in it and to tell its stories in your time here and in the nosh yeah um 
I'm so excited to be here um, and lovely to get to meet you, Mishi. Um, I, I think one of the things that makes the Hillel community so amazing is that we don't really have the choice to separate ourselves into our own little bubbles because it's such a small community relative to a city of 900,000. Um, we end up, you know, all mixing together and all having Shabbat dinner together and, you know, existing in the building throughout the week. And that means that we're able to really intersect with each other's stories um, and find perspectives that we didn't have coming in. I know for me, having gone to a secular public school, I showed up at Harvard and all of a sudden there was this ability, ability to be surrounded by a ton of Jews my own age that I hadn't really had growing up. And for a lot of people coming in from, you know, especially Orthodox day schools, all of a sudden there were all these non-Jews who were surrounding them in their daily life at school that they hadn't had for, you know, a number of years anyway. Um, and so everyone gets thrown into this new melting pot almost where people can um, explore their, their own story and explore where they find themselves belonging because people come in to the Hillel community with how they've grown up and with their experiences, but they don't come in really knowing um, who they are necessarily. And this is true for me too. And so having the space to kind of grow together and learn from each other, um, we're not just exchanging pepper for silk. We're exchanging our own stories uh, with each other. And I think that that's been really special to me and really special to a lot of the people I see around me uh, learning about different kinds of people and you know there's temptation to put each other in boxes like oh they go to the orthodox minion they go to the conservative minion they just show up for shabbat dinner but that doesn't tell the full story about anyone and our community is close enough that we're able to really get to know each other on a deeper level and i think that's been really special it's certainly special to watch from from this vantage point and and mishi um, speaking about getting up close to the particular stories, I know you had one in mind when I mentioned yet another midrash on the way to this conversation. Uh, and so let me just relate briefly that that particular midrash, which is about the tachash. What's that? Well, the point is that we don't quite know. One of the items requested for the sanctuary in our Torah reading this week, in addition to goat hides and purple and crimson yarn and gold and silver and copper, is the skin of a tachash. And it's not at all clear what animal that was. Some English translations say dolphin, which seems a bit implausible, and some say other things. Midrash Tanchuma says Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Nehemiah both suggested interpretations of the verse. Rabbi Yehuda said the tachash was a large kosher animal with a single horn in its forehead and a skin of six different colors which roamed the desert. Frankly, it sounds to me like that psychedelic unicorn emoji that has recently appeared on our iPhones and I still don't know what that is for. Uh, and the children of Israel captured one of those, says Rabbi Yehuda, and from its skin they made a covering for the ark. And Rabbi Nehemiah says the tachash was a miraculous creature that the Blessed Holy One created for just that precise moment, and it disappeared from the world immediately thereafter. The verse says, the length of each curtain of the tabernacle shall be 30 cubits. What known animal could supply enough skin for 30 
cubit curtain. It must then indeed have been a miraculous creature which disappeared from the world immediately thereafter. Close quote. Or maybe it was a blue whale, who knows? But on the suggestion of a miraculous being that appears for precisely the needful moment, well, Mishi, do share um, what from Israel's story comes to mind. Um, so, I mean, we, we've been um, now for almost a decade going um, going all over Israel, collecting stories uh, of, of people from living all kinds of different lifestyles and existences. And it's one of the, um, one of the most surprising things to me, sort of along the lines of what you were saying, Noah, um, is how, uh, how different um, all of life looks like from different vantage points and how um, difficult it is often for us to sort of extract ourselves from our own particular circumstances and uh, limitations and imaginations and to imagine what life really looks like if you are a um, Bedouin teenage girl living in an unrecognized village in the Negev, or if you're a, a Russian immigrant who was an engineer in Russia and now works as a uh, parking garage attendant in Nashdod, or if you are, you know, fill in the blank, any other possible, uh, possible uh, um, category that one can imagine. And, and, and you know, often we sit in our homes and watch television and we say, how could it be that somebody thinks that? Or how could it be that they act in a certain way? They're idiots, they're, they're you know, they don't understand. And the, and the truth of the matter is that um, what I learned most of all is how, how little we understand because, because life really is very different depending on, you know, what shoes you're walking in. And, um, and um, I think what you were referring to, Jonas, is, is one of our actually earliest stories. We've now been doing this for, as I said, for, for a very long time, but one of, sort of a stroke of beginner's luck, one of our earliest stories that we ever uh, did was with somebody much like all these uh, people I just described that I would never otherwise interact with, uh, who is an ultra-Orthodox uh, Jew uh, who lives in Tzfat, which is a uh, uh, the city of Kabbalah, uh, a holy city in the north of Israel. And um, I came across her story, um, which uh, when, you, uh, when you were talking about these improbable figures who uh, seem to be put on earth for... Uh, for a very particular purpose, like the Tachash, she she was the first one who came to mind. I, I won't go into the whole story. You can listen to it on on an episode of the show called Love Syndrome. But uh, basically, she's a, a serial adopter uh, of uh, babies with Down syndrome, um, and this this came um, this the, she ended up doing that because of her own life circumstances um, that. Her story begins in Far Rockaway and moves to Alaska and from Alaska to, to, to Tzfat. Um, and, um, and, and she's one of these people, um, I mean, not only has she become a friend, like many of the subjects of the, of the stories uh, that we do, um, and someone who I sort of care deeply about and return to time and again to see how they're doing and so on and so forth. But she's one of these people who, who every time you, um, every time you step out of a conversation with her, you think uh, there, there really aren't 
many people like that in the world. She, uh, I think she's adopted six or seven children with Down syndrome and fostered, fostered them. And uh, uh, just to add something that isn't in that episode, which will give you a little sense of the kind of human being I'm talking about. She was once in a, uh, waiting for a bus in a bus station in, uh, in Sfat, having a casual conversation with a stranger. And she said, oh, where are you coming from? And he said, oh, I was just in the, uh, I was just in, in local hospital, uh, um, you know, registering for an organ donation, uh, uh, um, you know, database. And she said, what, you can, uh, you can donate your organs? Uh, and he said, yes, you can. So instead of taking the bus home, she took the bus to the hospital and, uh, and uh, registered herself. And indeed, uh, several months later, something donated her kidney um, to, to, uh, to someone. So these are the kind, these are, I mean, but the story itself is, is, is really quite an unusual story, the story of her and her, her extended family. Um, but, you know, you, you, it's a sort of common theme in many stories, I feel, that, of people that we encounter that they, that you know, ordinary people living these extraordinary lives and making these extraordinary decisions, um, and often it feels like, uh, like really they were handpicked to to be in a certain circumstance and impact others, other people's lives as they've impacted my life as as someone who's heard their stories and hopefully the lives of listeners who who have heard their stories and in fact. After we aired that story about the uh, adoption of Down syndrome, we received uh, quite a few, uh, several dozen uh, um, emails in the years since of people who said that having heard that story, they decided themselves to adopt uh, babies with special needs. So I guess the, the unique circumstances in which people are placed on this earth end up multiplying in some way. I, I was listening to that love syndrome episode last night and this is probably a good moment to to say to to listeners here um to absolutely listen to israel's story it's hard to imagine someone hasn't yet but uh but but if you haven't yet do and noah thinking about wonderful beasts and where to find them so to speak um i, I don't want you to embarrass anyone in particular here but um and also speaking about unique moments and I, I don't want to do product placement but i i actually just um ordered from israel and arrived at home a, a zaxenberg juicer this is the this is the lever citrus and pomegranate juicer that you see in every juice stall in every shuk in israel it's all the same one it was developed by a, a polish immigrant i think in uh, anyhow in, 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 a, an immigrant from from central europe in the late 1920s and it's now still same family same kibbutz manufacturer um i can imagine an israel story on the on the zaxenberg juicer um, if you try using a different patent, a different model at your juice stall, you'll be laughed out of town. Um, but I want to stay with you for a moment, Noah, on this notion of, um, well, you're an innovator in our community. You've created activities and, um, and adventures together, not just a chronicler of, of what goes on. And there's another midrash, another another retelling of what happens in our Torah reading this week that's that, that comes to my mind. And this is about Moses being a little bit daunted by this by this mandate. Okay, now you create for me. Um, it, Moses, in fact, in this Midrash says, am I a God that can make such things? 
Um, it's as though God reaches over to Moses holding out the paintbrush of creation and says, okay, now you. Um, deal with due respect for the difference, I imagine that would be something like Yitzhak Perlman or Hilary Hahn handing you their violin and saying with all sincerity, um, here, you have a turn. <laughs> um, so I, I wonder, Noah, about um, moments in our Harvard Hillel world when that, okay, now you can be frightening or daunting, even as you and others rise to it. Sure. Um my my personal interpretation of of that moment um that moshe experiences is actually that um he's decided he's wandering through the desert for a while and so you know he might as well pick up some new hobbies while he's at it so he goes up to the mountain and takes a class on you know arc design and he's very overwhelmed but it works out in the end um i think one of the great things about the hillel community is that there are people to step up and make things happen. Um, part of the part of the dynamic is is staff creating programs for students, but a lot of it is students creating programs for their themselves and staff saying, "Okay, let's do it." Um, the I think the best example is um, actually the year before I arrived um, to people who were first years at the time. Um, who have since graduated, uh, started the Jewish Outing Club, which was uh, basically they wanted to go wander around in the woods and stay in a cabin and celebrate Shabbat in the woods. And so they said, can we do this? And our, you know, Lauren, who, who has since moved on to Hill International, but uh, was working at Harvard Hill at the time said, yeah, let's do it. Uh, so we're now five years in to the Jewish outing club and people who normally wouldn't celebrate Shabbat at all. People who are taken out of their comfort zone by not, you know, being near a shul on Shabbos morning, um, all come together, you know, in a cabin in the woods every now and then, uh, go on hikes and just celebrate Shabbat together. And I think that times like that, where we've been able to build sub-communities within our communities, uh, even when it seems like a really daunting thing to say, okay, everybody, we're just going to go to the woods. Um, you know, there have been there have been trips where there hasn't been running water or electricity. Um, there have been trips where we decided to to take it easy, and there was running water and electricity. Um, but building spaces like that, I think is where we really have a unique opportunity. Um, not so much building physical things because everything is so transient in a college community, something that's been going on for two or three years feels like it's been there forever. It feels like a, a tradition that's just been around because there's so much turnover in students. So building physical spaces, um, is not something that we're necessarily equipped to do because we don't know the needs of the next generation of students. But building um, experience spaces, in a sense, is a good chance to, to create for the people who are going to be coming next and for the people who are there now who maybe need something like that and don't even realize it. 
That's that's beautifully said. And and by the way, I also like your own midrash of of Moses and his mountaintop arc making workshop. Um, awesome as that as that may be. Uh, and 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 Mishi, um, Jewish storytellers abound, of course, but to be a chronicler of Israel is something quite special. And this may sound grandiose, but I, I wonder whether you ever think of your role in relation to our ancient chroniclers and our sacred storytellers of old. Um, I mean, fundamentally, at the, at the heart of, of Judaism, um, is, is a story, right? A story that we all get together um, regularly to, to read and to repeat and to, to tell again and again and again. Um, I uh, recently became a, uh, a father and, uh, and have now started to experience uh, what it's like to read, uh, read the same you know, book 40 times over so so but really that's not that foreign because that's what we do with the Torah uh, our entire lives um, and so in many ways I feel that it, it is a story that that, um, that that stands at the core of our identity and in fact you know while rereading this parasha um, you know you gave me the opportunity Jonah to, to, to reread this parasha which frankly is not, not the most riveting parasha of all times, but, but, uh, but, uh, but you know, um, so, so perhaps would be one that I would, I would kind of, you know, skip if I was just casually reading uh, the book of Exodus. But, uh, but um, in, in thinking about it, there's something, there's something really, uh, really interesting because, you know, there's some, there's something, in many ways that's, that's foreign to our, or perhaps I should say to my kind of modern day understanding or perception of Judaism. Um, because, um, and if you, if you sort of go online and Google, Google various different, uh, just for listeners or viewers who, who haven't yet read the parasha, it's all about sort of measurements and, uh, and, uh, um, and, and almost kind of an obsession with the details of, of, of the worship and, uh, and cult, cultic paraphernalia in, in the tabernacle um, and, you know, the exact, uh, exact measurements of each, each item and each, um, and each um, piece of furniture and so on and so forth in the ark and the, and the menorah. Um, but so if you go online and, 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 and you sort of Google pictures of the tabernacle and stuff, there's, there, there's, there's something almost, uh, almost uncomfortable about it because it feels very, very foreign from, um, to, to, you know, our perception of Judaism, or again, I should say my perception of Judaism is more, is more value-based today, is more, uh, is more about uh, what Judaism stands for, things like that. And here in, in some fundamental way, you have something, that, that is really like a cult worship. I mean, uh, um, there's this kind of Wizard of Oz-like quality to, uh, to it. Of There's a certain place where God is going to, to appear, you know, between the two kuvim that are on top of the lid of the ark and, uh, and this, these exact measurements of, uh, of, um, of symmetry and size and everything's very uniform. And, 
and um, and and kind of secret. You know, I, I I kept on thinking to myself while I was reading this. You know, why all this secrecy? Why why do we have all these curtains and veils and uh, and you know all these things that obscure what's actually what's actually going on? I uh, I know that uh, I know that uh, we always refrain, or you always refrain on this uh, podcast from uh, from from being political uh, or being too, too political in any way. But I'll just say that the first thing that came to mind when I was reading this is 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 the prime minister's house in Israel currently. So Bibi's house, for those of of you who who don't know, is is completely obscured with these black tarps that you know get take everyone away you can't even peep in you can't see what's going on uh you know there's demonstrators uh, outside and inside there's this you know who knows what's 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 going on and you wonder what's up with all this secrecy you know why why is why do we create these tiers of you know who's who's um holy enough to go in and to wear and so on and so forth so in all of this, there's something actually, you know, Judaism, you're right, is, is all about stories and is, and that, that's sort of the Judaism that I, that I, um, I can identify with and which sort of informs my Jewish identity, I think. And this, this uh, feels different. It feels like it really is a cult. Um, and uh, also part of our story, and I guess an important part of of our story, but uh, not one that immediately comes to mind when thinking about uh, sort of the Jewish story. And the compass needle, I, I think, begins to spin around sort of in a, in a, in a place like that. And then the Midrash seems to get confused at moments, whether it's talking about, about the heavens or the earth. Um, and yet, you know, maybe, maybe those kinds of places are in some ways best left in the abstract. Um, but here we are on the ground, charged with you know, charged with creating them. Uh, Mishi, I know you're heading straight from this to a recording, uh, okay. so I want to be sensitive about your time and let you catch your breath. So let me just say, by way of conclusion, maybe uh, a Hillel director and 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 all of us on the team have to be in some way romantics. Uh, certainly, I'm attached to the idea that every person who comes through our doors brings something distinct unique and inimitable that is essential to the picture. That's certainly the case with the two of you. And I really want to thank both of you for allowing me to lift that up in your instances and, and through the two of you to appreciate really um, and, and to revel in the panoply of our Israel and our Harvard Hillel stories. So Noah, thank you. And Mishi, thank you so very much. Thank you. And Noah, it was a pleasure to meet you. And uh... Look forward to uh, to subscribing to Nash on this and to and to, to reading all the wonderful stories from from the Harvard Hillel. Lovely to meet you as well. Speaking of legacy, that really is something Noah has has fashioned in his time here. All right, thanks both of you.